Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I think I have the longest list of items <laughs> yeah. I've ever sent you for a show today. Yes. There's so much going on in the world. So we're going to cruise through a ton of stuff. I Let's guess we'll it. try to go a little faster. Yeah, yeah. But like, we'll there's a lot of really important issues out there. Yeah. Um, the A quick rundown of what we got. So Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. We're going to talk about that at the top. And then with our guest, uh, Labor Party MP David Lammy, friend Best of the pod. British friend of the pod. Hilarious guy. Um, we'll talk about why Trump and the Prime Minister of Pakistan had one of the weirdest Oval Office <laughs> yeah. pool sprays I've ever seen. We'll do an Iran update. Uh, there's some interesting reports on Trump's bizarre relationship with John Bolton. China's making some moves militarily. Uh, Steve Bannon is spooked and he's drumming up a new Red Scare. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump has a new Secretary of Defense and maybe a new Director of National Intelligence. So there's some personnel news. We got some Russian stooges in the news and maybe making face apps. Uh, and then maybe we'll touch on ASAP Rocky in Area 51. I don't know. Yeah. It might get there. weird at the Lots end. So one thing I always forget to do in the show, uh, the, the download growth of Pod Save the World is growing and growing and growing. And one way you guys can help us is by rating the show, reviewing it in the iTunes store. Tell your friends about it. If you know a kid studying international relations, yeah. this is Let's a cheat world sheet. Yeah. Okay? So spread the good news. Uh, and uh, that's the last time I'm going to shamelessly promote us. Let's do it. At Let's least promote. this week. Yeah, this week. Okay. Before we get to the news, two quick housekeeping items. Uh, there's some big news about our LA Pots of America show at the Greek Theater on August 17th. You've heard that we're going to be joined by Emmy Award-winning journalist Jamel Hill, uh, Amanda Seals, Best Coast, and Jim James. Well, Maggie Rogers announced that she is going to be there, too. It's going to be an unbelievable night. The proceeds from the show will be donated to organizations at the forefront of the fight to protect the vote across America. It's Vote.org, Election Protection, the National Redistricting Foundation, and Think Social Impact. So get your tickets now at crooked.com slash thegreek. Also, Positive the World is joining up with J Street to discuss the future of American leadership in the Middle East. Ben and I are going to kick off J Street's 2019 National Conference in October with a live podcast taping to dig into all the big questions around foreign policy issues like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and global diplomatic matters. So it should be really cool. Join us on October 26th in D.C. at the J Street Conference. Check out jstreet.org to sign up. See you guys there. Okay, let's talk about the United Kingdom. So former London Mayor Boris Johnson is now the Prime Minister of the UK. Take that in. Theresa May is gone. Jeremy Hunt, his closest opponent, uh, was vanquished. Ben, this isn't a surprise per se and that he was like the likely, it's a likely political outcome, but it's still hard to believe that a guy like Boris Johnson is now running the show. Um, Johnson can be funny and charming and entertaining. Uh, here's a quick example of <laughs> why from his first speech as Tory party leader. And I know, I know some, some wag has already pointed out that deliver, unite and defeat was not the perfect acronym for an election campaign, since unfortunately it spells dud. But they forgot the final E, my friends, E for energize. And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude. <laughs> dude. Great editing there. Uh, yeah. So this dude has also been all over the map politically. He's gotten in trouble for fabricating stories as a journalist. He's been criticized for using racist and homophobic language. Uh, again, we dig in this in more detail with friend of the pod, uh, David Lammy. But any initial reaction from you about Boris Johnson's ascendance? Well, I mean, you know, as in the U.S., it just kind of shows that there's not a bottom in British politics, right? <laughs> I mean, this guy, let's be clear, he's just like a professional liar, you yeah, know? Yeah. I mean, he started as a journalist uh, literally just making shit up about the European Union from Brussels. Um, the, the Brexit campaign, which he led, um, was founded on lies that there'd be more money for the health service, that they wouldn't have to pay uh, the EU a fee in order to leave, which they will have to mm -hmm. do. All these promises that were proved to be wrong, uh, and Theresa May had to be the one holding the bag for that. Uh, and yet this is the guy that the Conservative Party turns to uh, when Theresa May is unable to deliver Brexit precisely because she can't square the promises that Boris Johnson made with the reality of what Brexit would entail. Um, so, you know, as in the U.S., it's funny how U.S. politics and U.K. politics seem to always go in the same yeah, way, right? We're, we're kind of rhyming right now. No, well, we had Blair and Clinton, right? And, you know, Obama, well, Cameron was a different party, but they, they got along. But but now we've got essentially these two uh, complete liars uh, who are basically arsonists inside of uh, the political cultures of their countries. And Boris Johnson is soon going to discover with the fall deadline for Brexit that, you know, he he can't make good on the promises he made. And either he's going to have to crash 
the UK out of uh, the European Union without a deal, which would be catastrophic, or he may have to confront the reality that this is not a good idea. Yeah, it's not good. The only good news for us is uh, there's some other political leadership in another country that people will laugh at for yeah, a little while. Yeah, feel a little less you know? lonely. Yeah. A little, yeah, the eyes may be off us. Okay, uh, let's talk about Hong Kong. So we've been talking about this protest movement in yeah. Hong Kong a few times uh, on the show. So to quickly get you guys up to speed, huge numbers of people have taken to the streets to protest a bill that would allow Hong Kong residents to be extradited to mainland China for trial. Those protests turned violent on Monday when a mob of men in white shirts with sticks and metal bars and bats started attacking anti-government protesters, some journalists. There was even a lawmaker who got the hell beaten out of them. Um, The police, who have been using harsh tactics like tear gas and rubber bullets against the protesters, did nothing to stop these thugs who were basically in uniforms, these white shirts. Um, There's speculation that they may have been paid thugs sent out there by someone in retaliation for uh, protesters vandalizing a Chinese government liaison office in the city. It's also worth noting that Chinese state media has really started to pick up uh, and run stories about the damage to that liaison office. So they're clearly trying to push a narrative that the yeah. protesters themselves are violent. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know who paid these guys, yeah. but it does feel like we're in the middle of a classic authoritarian playbook and crackdown on a peaceful protest movement. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this playbook before. So, you know, a couple of things are notable here. I mean, one is one of the things that the Chinese government or the Hong Kong government would want to do is to discredit this protest movement, which has been overwhelming. You know, mm-hmm. as we've mentioned, you had up to a quarter of the population of Hong Kong on the streets at times protesting uh, this extradition bill that would make people in Hong Kong susceptible to being sent into mainland China. Um, and, and the way you discredit a protest movement is by making you know a peaceful, nonviolent mass mobilization look like a bunch of violent thugs. Uh, who need to be dealt with uh, with law and order. And so we've seen in other instances cases where the government essentially has thugs go in and pick fights with protesters, yeah. try to invite a violent response. So one scenario, and I, we don't know the truth here, is that the Chinese government or perhaps people associated with the Chinese government, they may be wanting to discredit this protest movement. They may perhaps want to be provoking them to commit acts of violence uh, and to look like they're not the mass mobilization, peaceful protest movement that seemed to enjoy the support of the vast majority of the people of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. That's one scenario. I think another an interesting thing is that the protesters decided to go after the liaison office of the People's Republic of China. Yeah. They've been directing their ire at the Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive of Hong Kong. Obviously, she's backed by Beijing, but she is the Hong Kong authority, Mm -hmm. for them to go after in a peaceful way or or perhaps even with these acts of vandalism, the Beijing liaison office shows you that they're really targeting the fundamental nature of Hong Kong's association with uh, China. And that is going to invite a response yeah. From the Chinese government. That's a big swing. It's a big swing. And, you know, they may just, they're emboldened and they may want to push this uh, all the way and register their complaints. And I should say, like, yes, the Chinese strategy is going to be wait this out, sow division among the protesters, maybe provoke them in acts of violence, discredit them through their media organs. But there's some risk for the Chinese too. Already we've seen statistics that there's going to be a pretty dramatic potentially drop off and tourism to Hong Kong because who wants to go someplace where there's mobs of people in the street? Uh, You've got a lot of international businesses in Hong Kong that, you know, may be a little wary of (laughs) having their employees uh, in a potentially unstable situation. So this, this bears watching. And and again, I continue to just have admiration. People of Hong Kong are under much greater threats uh, from an authoritarian government in Beijing than you know, we are here uh, with our quasi-authoritarian government in Washington, and yet they keep turning on the street. Yeah. I mean, it, the New York Times did uh, a great piece on some of the underlying economic conditions that yeah. might be fueling protesters in Hong Kong. There's just horrible wage stagnation. The living conditions are unbearable. I mean, people are living in subdivided apartments where they have 48 square feet to live in. Uh, some apartments that are 
full apartments are 160 square feet. So uh, meanwhile, economic inequality yeah. is getting terrible. You know, wages aren't going up. So there's that piece of this. There's also the U.S. government response I noted yesterday where Trump was asked about these protesters. He, he offered no support, no solidarity, no condemnation on the, the thugs who attacked them. Uh, actually, he credited Xi Jinping by saying he had acted responsibly and I think showed restraint might have been the word he used. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, which is totally mystifying. Democratic values. Yeah, I mean, Xi Jinping is uh, is not exactly shown restraint. Um, look, America should be on the side of people who want to preserve their freedoms and civil liberties, which is what these protests are all about. Because if the Chinese can essentially apprehend you and bring you into the mainland China, you know, that is the beginning of the end, if not the end, of political freedoms in Hong Kong, right? And so we should be on the side of the people protesting. And, you know, they the authoritarians have their leadership in Xi Jinping. The democratic world needs to look for leadership somewhere. And it's a tragedy that they're not getting it from Donald Trump. Yeah, agreed. Well, maybe it's a tragedy they're not getting from the president of the United States. There I, don't, you are. Yeah. I don't know if Trump is the guy that they'd yeah. be looking for. Anyway. Well put, yeah. well put. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go to the Oval Office. So on Tuesday, President Trump welcomed uh, Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, to the Oval for a meeting. Khan is an interesting guy. Uh, like Trump, he's a celebrity turned head of state, though he was a world-class cricket player, not like a shitty reality yeah. TV producer. But um, So let's start with the, the state visit itself and the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Um, normally, when a head of state like Khan visits Washington, a team of senior U.S. officials is sent to greet him or her at the airport. Apparently, the State Department just forgot because there are all these videos <laughs> of Khan riding on those like sad people mover things at <laughs> Dulles Airport with his staff and no escort. So maybe they were trying to send him a message yeah. and insult him. Who knows? So previously, Trump has tweeted a bunch of criticism of Pakistan. He suspended the $1.3 billion in annual security aid that they'd gotten for a while. Um, Khan is a nationalist. He is more than happy to fire back at the mm -hmm. West when it suits him politically. Uh, and so, you know, there had been some Twitter fighting in 2018. Uh, of course, in the Oval Office, it was all smiles from Trump because he never gives people tough news in person. So yeah. I guess my question, Ben, is, you know, Pakistan is an important partner slash frenemy in our fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The meeting on Tuesday was supposed to clear the air and reset the relationship. How do you think it went? <laughs> and how important is our relationship with Pakistan these days as we're trying to wind down the war in Afghanistan? Well, look, I mean, it's no secret that Pakistan has maintained relations with the Taliban. Uh, some of the senior leadership of the Taliban has lived in Pakistan. Uh, there's been this constant push and pull from the Obama administration, the Bush administration before to try to get them to crack down those safe havens. They usually take half measures. It should be noted that Imran Khan, as the prime minister, is not really in charge of all that. You know, the Pakistani military operates somewhat independent of the civilian government, yeah, right? Yeah. And the so the Pakistani military and intelligence services have something of a free hand. And so you always have kind of a dual relationship with Pakistan. You, you know, you talk to civilians, but you also have your own lines of communication to the military and, and uh, the intelligence services. Now, why is this important at this moment? If the administration is trying to negotiate an end to the Afghan war, as uh, Khalil Zad, our envoy uh, to Afghanistan, is doing with the Taliban, you really want the Pakistanis to be constructive in that process, right? Mm -hmm. If the Pakistanis are supportive of uh, a peaceful resolution to the conflict, if they're using some of their sway with the Taliban to push them in a certain direction, and we're dealing with the Afghan government, that would make a peace settlement in Afghanistan much easier to achieve. Um, so that's what we would want uh, from the, the Pakistanis at this time. Frankly, we also want to make sure that that their uh, relationship with India doesn't go off the rails because you don't want two nuclear-powered yeah, nations got to close fight recently. a war. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know Trump made some weird comments about that that we can he talk sure about. Sure did. But it, so it seems like you know Trump, Pakistan, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is one that is filled with complexity and nuance. Those are not exactly the president's strong suits. No, they are not. Yeah. Uh, which gets us to this weird 40-minute press availability that Trump did with Khan in the Oval Office. So just a little context. Like, often when you have a foreign leader in the Oval Office, you'll take a couple questions from the pool 
in the oval, or you'll set up podium somewhere yeah. and you do what's called a two and two, where you take two questions from each side and both people get to clear the air and the reporters ask seven part questions of each yeah. journalist and it turns into a little mini news conference. Trump loves to just wing it and take yeah. a bunch of questions. So the first thing I noticed about this little pool spray was Trump talked like the whole time. Khan got no questions for 30 minutes and yeah. he looked ripshit pissed. Uh, then at one point, Trump bragged that he could win the war in Afghanistan in 10 days, but he won't do it because he doesn't want to kill 10 million people. So that's good that he doesn't want to commit a genocide uh, in a week, but a little disconcerting and not surprisingly, the Afghans issued a statement asking for a quote clarification of the comments. Yes, I imagine you would want that. Uh, later in the avail, Trump claimed that the Indian prime minister asked him to mediate one of the most sensitive issues in the world, a 70-year-old dispute between India and Pakistan over the Kashmir region. Uh, India almost immediately shot that claim down. They don't want someone mediating the dispute. They're the much stronger party. They want to just decide it themselves. Uh, later, during an answer about Iran, Trump joked that Pakistan would never release propaganda or lies the way the Iranians do, which, of course, is a total lie. The Pakistanis do this all the time. They play stories in their media. Mm -hmm. Um Ben, what did you make of this very special pool spray? And would you pick uh, Donald Trump to mediate a dispute as sensitive as Kashmir? Yeah, I don't quite know where to begin. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Very quick on the last one. The Pakistanis were among the most aggressive uh, uh, governments at disinformation. Certainly the beginning of our administration. Oh, you yeah. remember this. Putting out all kinds of crazy shit uh, about the United States funded by their government. But put that aside. Um, where to begin? Let's see. Suggesting that you could kill 10 million Afghans in a few days. Uh, let's put cool that at the top cool. of the list right now. First of all, he said, we have plans to do this, and he refuses to do it, right? So it's kind of like his imaginary meeting with the general yeah, over bombing the Iran. I, I chose not to kill people when I could have. That is a lie. There, I, I mean, look, I was in government for eight years in Afghan meetings uh, almost every week. There is no fucking plan to nuke Afghanistan, right? Like, what lunatic would dream dream that up, right? I don't know. Uh, I mean, well, it's either a lie or if they've drawn up the plan to nuke Afghanistan in, in the Trump administration, that's even more worrying and insane. But knowing the U.S. military, which is some semblance uh, of ethics and morals, they're not doing that. So mm -hmm. Trump is making this up. Why? You, you like, know what's what, weird? Remember, like— Early on in the Trump administration, they dropped a huge bomb called the MOP, the yeah, massive the Moab, the, the Moab, mother, the sorry. mother of all bombs. I was thinking yeah, of the yeah, massive yeah, ordnance yeah, penetrator. Yeah. My fault. A mistake happens all the time. Yeah, you, there's like a twenty five thousand pound bomb they dropped on yeah. like a bunch of tunnels and yeah. it with no. And then Trump impact. went out and boasted about it. Yeah, yeah he boasted yeah. about it. And then he boasted about it again in this pool spray. So maybe that was on his mind. Maybe that was on his mind, but. Look, this is completely unacceptable. I mean, yes, the, the Afghans just heard the president of the United States, you know, casually talking about killing 10 million of them and literally saying he could wipe them off the face of the earth. Um, you think that's going to help us in Afghanistan? No. It's like no. Stalin. Like their government had to call in our envoy today and read in the Riot Act. Uh, these are not people uh, who are going to be inclined uh, to think that America values them and their lives just because the president of the United States says he's not inclined today to kill 10 million people. <laughs> what so about is, tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. This is disgusting and offensive. Uh, number one. Number two, Kashmir. Okay. This is the world's number one nuclear flashpoint, right? Pakistan, India have fought multiple wars over Kashmir. They both have nuclear weapons. The worst case scenario is this thing spirals out of control and you have a potential nuclear war. Now, India as the bigger, stronger party, has always resisted any third-party mediation of this dispute. They want to negotiate it directly with Pakistan. So the way for the U.S. to be involved, and we were we try to be involved, is, is quietly, you know, to, to try to broker things behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. By injecting himself uh, out there, and, and let me just be clear, the Pakistanis would like the U.S. to mediate because they'd like us to kind of come in and pressure the Indians to do things. So it could be that Imran Khan raised this prospect with Trump and he's mm -hmm. like, oh, sure, I'll do it. I'll say I'm going to be the mediator. Well, what happened after that? The Indian foreign ministry had to put out a statement saying that what Trump said was a lie. It wasn't true, that Modi hadn't asked uh, Trump to mediate this dispute. What did he just do? He just set back our capacity to play any role here, right? Because now the Indians are going to give us a stiff arm. Then the Pakistanis are going to have to respond to the Indians. And he just made one of the world's most dangerous situations more dangerous by what he did. So in the course of him just having fun, hamming it up with the press and a 30-minute spray, 
like he insulted the entire country of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. He insulted the prime minister of India. He set back the likelihood that we can play a constructive role uh, on Kashmir. And and meanwhile, he's got the Pakistani prime minister that he left dangling on the fucking people mover at Dulles <laughs> Airport, like sitting there like a potted plant. Like, what the hell is this? I, I mean, you know, there's so many things that, that bother us, like, you know, the racist tweets. But like, where are the Republicans, you know, who, who love to put forward their commitment to the war in Afghanistan and to American leadership? This guy is embarrassing you on the world stage and making the world a dangerous place every single time he opens his mouth, right? And we will not hear word one no. from noted, you know, national security expert Lindsey Graham and all these people, they're just sitting here watching this guy turn us into an embarrassment. Yeah. And all the and, and all the things that are actually disputed and all the sort of irritants in the relationship just get glossed over with happy talk. You know, he talks about how great Khan is and how great Pakistan is. He just doesn't, doesn't yeah. deliver any tough messages. Including, well, yeah, you know, he'll do it after he leaves via tweet because right, the guy exactly. doesn't have the guts to actually do it to anybody's face, right? Yeah. Or, you know, or his travel bans, right? He's praising Pakistanis, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, so, so you know, this, this is a pretty good distillation of everything that is wrong with how he approaches the job of commander-in-chief where you don't threaten nuclear war on the one hand and you don't risk it making less likely that you convert a nuclear war on the other hand. Yeah, just wing it. W wing it in Kashmir. Trump mentioned Iran in the, in that Pulse Bracelet, this is a little Iran update. So the Iranians announced that they have arrested 17 Iranian citizens who they claim had been trained as part of a CIA spy network. Trump denied this uh, in that same pool spray with Imran Khan. Uh, Pompeo did on, in a statement, I think. Um, you and I don't know the truth, but certainly it would not be the first time that Iran yeah. claimed success in some CIA mole hunt that never happened. Uh, last week, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps seized a British tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. Presumably this was done as some sort of retaliation for the UK detaining one of their tankers uh, a couple weeks earlier. I also noticed that uh, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, is on a PR offensive here in the US. So if anyone knows Zarif, please let him know that he is always welcome on Pod Save the World. He may be a world, though, for all we know. You know, yeah. let's hope so. Uh, rate and review us, uh, Mr. <laughs> Zarif. Uh, lastly, it's notable the Europeans still want to stay in the Iran deal and they have rejected a proposal for a U.S.-led force to protect commercial yeah. ships in the region. So there's still a pretty big split between us yeah. and the Europeans. So, Ben, that was more of an update than a question. I'm just kind of curious what you make of this last week events and how your anxiety level is about all things Iran. Well, it's kind of like a permanent high anxiety. Um, I mean, I, you're right. Like, they make all kinds of claims about detaining CIA assets mm -hmm. or agents and, and you know, more like Jason Rezaian, friend yeah, of the pod, so a journalist like, who was yeah. not one. Or they could just be rolling up Iranians, right? These aren't yeah, necessarily Westerners and people. saying that they're tied to the U.S. somehow. That said, um, you know, it's part of a series of provocative actions. They're trying to get everybody's attention. They're trying to to suggest that they don't like the status quo and they want some something. They want concessions or they want uh, potentially uh, to Im impose their own costs on the West by raising the price of oil or by making it more dangerous for tankers to pass through this area. What's notable to me is you have a British tanker detained. One, the Brits reaffirm their support for the Iran deal, for the yeah. JCPOA. And two, saying, no, instead of working with the U.S., we're going to do our own kind of European maritime support for our tankers. So they're basically telling the United States, in as many words, you created this problem. <laughs> we're put, let's be very clear. If the Iran deal is still in place, this is not happening. Yeah, of course. If the Iran deal is still in place, there are not tankers being disrupted. There are not American drones being shot down. There are not crazy claims of 17 spies being arrested. This is happening because it's their response to us pulling out of the JCPOA. And the Europeans are saying to us, thanks, but no thanks. No, we don't want to be a part of potentially John Bolton's war plan here. So we don't want some U.S. maritime escort because we don't want to be part of the potential you know, trigger point for Bolton to finally get the war that he almost got Trump to get us into a few weeks ago. Yeah. So it, it shows, I think, in stark relief, the division between the United States and Europe on this issue, the kind of isolation of the U.S., and again, the strategic incoherence of the Trump administration, because what is their policy? Are, do they want to fight the war? Well, no. Trump doesn't want to, but Bolton does. Uh, well, then what are they going to do? They don't have a united front with our allies because our allies want to go back to the Iran deal. Uh, so then you've got you know Rand Paul doing 
you know, his own diplomacy in Oman. I mean, this is an insane way. Golf course diplomacy. Yeah, it's an insane way to manage one of the most sensitive issues in the world. My Again, my hope is that somehow the temperatures fall down and, and the Trump administration does enter into some diplomacy, even though all that could render is something that, like what used to be the status quo under the Iran deal. Yeah. Uh, also, I learned today that Bob Ross is apparently uh, huge in Iran. That you remember the painter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Happy little, yeah. happy little drone. I love paint a happy I'm little a centrifuge or whatever. <laughs> Jason Rezaian said he used to watch him all the time yeah. while in prison. So that's yeah. that led, surprising. That led to to one of our better text exchanges with Jason Rezaian yeah. because I, I, you know. I was a fan of Bob Ross. I mean, you know, oh, I watched it all the time. Happy little trees down here, yeah. and but who knew Bob Ross is big in Iran? I mean, it just shows you there's a common cultural language here. You know, maybe yeah, maybe we have Zarifan and we you know talk a little Bob Ross. That's um, a good idea. I mean, look, it does show you the power of these cultural campaigns. It, it does, you know, and uh, it shows you the people are people everywhere, and everybody likes a happy little cloud down next to a mountain lake. Goddamn right, yeah. except for John Bolton. No, he wants to fucking bomb the happy little cloud, you know, <laughs> down by the lake. Right? We're all sitting here watching Bob Ross and feeling really good about life, and and there's a there's a there's a mountain and there's a vista, and then Bolden wants to come in and drop the mother of all fucking bombs on on the, uh, poor little Bob Ross. So listen, you listening at home might think that that is a harsh description of Mr. Bolton, but you know who no, agrees with it is Donald Trump. Yeah. Totally yeah, agrees yeah, with yeah. you. Axios published a big story about Trump's relationship with his warmonger walrus national security advisor, and. The piece makes clear that Trump actually does believe that Bolton wants to invade every country, but he's cool with it because he thinks Bolton allows him to do like a good cop, bad cop routine and give some psychological advantage in negotiations. So I read this piece and like, in all seriousness, can the president have a good cop, bad cop routine when one of the other cops works for him? And also, do you think he understands how much authority the national security advisor has to just do stuff on his own. I mean, wouldn't that freak you out yeah. knowingly hiring someone like John Bolton? Yeah, I mean, there are two problems. <laughs> well, there are more than two problems, but two I'd highlight. One is what this ignores is that the National Security Advisor literally has his or her hands on all of the levers of power in the government, right? So they're the one coordinating the different agencies of the government. They're the one giving direction. Uh, so John Bolton while Trump hasn't been paying attention, right? Because mm -hmm. Trump is not exactly a details man, nope. right? Has been pulling out of arms control treaties, you know, has been pulling out of uh, all kinds of international agreements, has been engaged in this kind of belligerent escalation of sanctions against everybody he doesn't like. And, and so, you know, Trump is not at all savvy enough to execute a good cop, bad cop relationship because he has no idea what Bolton's doing. Dude, God I, I, knows I, I, what I, like know, covert action programs he is authorized, signed off on, pushed forward. This is a really important point. Like we are going to find out years from now all the crazy shit that's been happening. Wild shit. Because there's a lot of power for the National Security Advisor to authorize covert action that, that nobody has to report uh, to the public, obviously. Right? In fact, it's deniable. You can deny it legally. Well, the, and, take, and let's take the case of Iran. We could see for months and talked about on the spot, wow, Bolton's really laying the conditions for war. You know, like he's doing this with sanctions. He's moving aircraft carriers to the region. He's making these threats. He's closing con you know, consulate in Iraq. And Trump didn't figure this out <laughs> until no. like months after the rest of the world did. And, until 10 minutes yeah, before yeah, it was too ten, late. <laughs> yeah. so, so like he does it. So, so he, he's not in control of this situation as much as Bolton is. And, and so you get this kind of complete incoherence. It's not good cop, bad cop to have John Bolton drive the car all the way to the brink of the war with Iran and then Donald Trump be like, wait a second, we're about to go to war with Iran? Yeah. I don't want to do that. That's not smart. No. That's stupid, That's right? wild. And then the second thing is, this is, you know, you know how I heard you guys on, you know, Pod Save America, I'm a, a listener, um, <laughs> you know, talk yeah. about essentially, you know, that Trump fires off racist tweets and then after the fact, they try to come up with a strategy. Yeah, cobble it together. They've been doing this on foreign policy for three years totally. where they say, oh, no, actually, it's a madman theory of diplomacy, yeah. right? So Trump will insult an ally or he'll lash out or he'll do or say something really stupid. And then after the fact, they're like, no, no, this is actually all planned. He's the madman negotiator. Well, like, let's look at the results. Like John Bolton's hobby horses and Trump's hobby horses. Maduro's still in power. The North Greens are building new nuclear weapons. The Iranians are accelerating their stockpile of nuclear material 
and detaining tankers. So if there is some madman theory, it's not working. No. Trying to trying to revisit it. The the funniest thing in this whole story, to the extent that any of it is funny, is that there's one anecdote about Trump sometimes slips a script and he plays bad cop. And apparently he did it in a meeting with like the Dutch prime minister and he started bad mouthing NATO and he was like, oh, well, I know John loves NATO, don't you, John? It's like Trump can only figure out a way to be a dick to our closest allies. But yeah, he'll be the bad cop with the allies. It, so exactly. It's yeah. ridiculous. Um, two more personnel things. So last week we talked about Trump was considering replacing Dan Coates, uh, his director of national intelligence with a like right wing conspiracy theorist named Fred Flights. So that is still the horror, horror scenario. Yeah. Uh, that is still the worst case scenario. But apparently Trump met with uh, infamous moron Devin Nunes to discuss replacement ideas for Coates, which in turn has fueled speculation that Devin Nunes himself might be in the running. And so while I actually truly do believe that Nunes is less bad than Fred Flights, who thinks the U.S. government has been infiltrated <laughs> by a secret Muslim army trying to implement Sharia law. It's a close call. T- close call. Uh Devin is best known for manipulating intelligence for political purposes, which is the worst kind of person possible for this job. Yeah, lying, lying about intelligence. I mean, uh, it, it would, it might not take it into the realm of the complete crackpot conspiracy theory stuff mm-hmm. that uh, Fred Fletch would. But let's be clear: this would be a massive politicization, and it would undercut again the credibility of the U.S. intelligence community. W- would anybody necessarily believe that? Devin Nunes is going to reflect dispassionately and analytically the views of the intelligence community. I'll tell you something from personal experience, right? I was a bit player in one of Devin Nunes's conspiracy theories, right? So remember, he kind of came out and said that he discovered the real scandal. This mm-hmm. is before you know they found the FBI agents texting yeah, yeah. and having affairs or whatever. Um, and it was that me and Susan Rice were guilty of quote unquote unmasking right. Trump officials to create the Russia scandal, right? And unmasking is a practice where essentially you can request the identity of a, of a U.S. person, an American, who might be an intelligence report. And so he's out there fucking blowing his horn about you know, how this was a real scandal and it confirmed that the Obama people were behind all this, knowing, right? Because he's on the intelligence community. You know how many uh, unmasking requests I made related to the Trump people? How many? Zero. So he just made it up. He just made it up. Like, and so I'm sitting here thinking like, well, this sucks because I'm going to have to go, you know, get my name yeah, dragged through the mud with the Fox News channel to call our poor, poor friend of the pod, Mike Gottlieb, my lawyer. And, yeah. and like, so this guy knows it's bullshit, right? And this is the caliber of person that we're dealing with, yeah, right? Because there's a long make stuff up. If you unmask somebody, there's a pretty significant paper trail. There's a paper trail. trail. <laughs> they could check. They could check. Yeah. Like he would know, right? One call. And oh, and then my favorite, Tommy, is... I have to go testify in front of the House Intelligence uh, Committee for like a few hours. Um, fine, I had to do that. Senate Intelligence Committee on Russia. I was happy to serve my country in my own way. Uh, but the, the precipitating factor of this was all the Devin Nunes stuff, right? Guess who's not there? Who? Devin Nunes. Oh, my God. He wasn't even in the fucking hearing. Remember when he released yeah, his like, memo and he hadn't even read yeah, any of the underlying I, intelligence? This, this, this guy's guy more than happy to go out and, and go on Fox News and rant and rave at the Obama administration. And he doesn't even show... You know, I had... Yeah. I had uh, I had the pleasure of Trey Gowdy's company instead. Brutal. You know? So this, this guy, so I mean, to, to, to have somebody who basically views intelligence as a political weapon as the head of the intelligence community is a very bad idea. Yeah, agreed. One other quick personnel update. Uh, last week, I talked to Senator uh, Tammy Duckworth about Mark Esper's nomination to be Secretary of Defense. So on Tuesday, today, the Senate confirmed him by a vote of 90 to 8 overwhelming bipartisan vote. But it has been 204 days since we had a Senate-confirmed Secretary of yeah, Defense. Yeah, remarkable. Which is just, like, insane, given that DOD is by far the biggest budget, biggest workforce, biggest moral responsibility yeah. in terms of what your department does. And we almost started a couple of wars in that period. Yeah, and yeah. you need stability. So I don't have a lot else to say about Esper. I don't know if you do, but, I mean, that is it's just, it's notable the that only it's been that thing long. I, I'd say is, like, th- this guy does not have a background in, in kind of foreign policy. And, yeah. and can we find someone who's not, have a background in like the defense industry. He's a lobbyist, right? He's a lobbyist, right? Raytheon so, guy or something. So it's of a piece with the rest of the administration. And you get you get the coal lobbyists at the EPA, you know, you get you get the defense guy at at, at DOD. Um that is not the kind of I mean he, by all accounts he's not like a bad guy. No, I'm sure he's but right. I mean like like we should have people who have some expertise in whether or not we go to war, not just expertise on how you sell weapons to fight wars. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, a quick sort of depressing update out of Jerusalem. Uh, on Monday, Israeli workers started knocking down dozens of Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem. This happened after a court battle where the Israelis had maintained that these homes were built too close to their West Bank separation barrier and thus posed a security threat. The homeowners said that they had permits to build in that area from the Palestinian Authority and that they were on West Bank soil, um, but ultimately they lost. So this move has been criticized by UN officials, uh, and it was immediately incorporated into Hamas's messaging about Israel and the occupation. I just thought it was worth mentioning because these demolitions inflame tensions in the region. Uh, and it's also a reminder that the status quo is really a, a de facto erosion of Palestinian territory and rights, which maybe that's Netanyahu's plan, but it's it's well. It's hard. I think I think it's a reminder that that the, there are human beings here. Yeah, you know, you hear yeah. about settlements and settlements. It's a kind of friendly word. Yeah. You know, um, there are people who live in these houses, families yep. who are going to have their houses destroyed, right? Because they're Palestinian. And, and okay, the Israeli government says it's too close to the separation barrier. That well, there's no sovereignty for these people. There's no self determination for these people. So Israel just gets to make a decision. No, we don't like where you live, so we're going to destroy your house, yeah. right? No, I don't accept that, and people shouldn't accept that. And it's outrageous, and, and and it foreshadows where this is going. Because ultimately, like the more and more settlements you build and the more you want to push back the land that the Palestinians control, you're going to be demolishing homes. They've done it before. They're doing it now. They'll do it again. And I, I would just take it as an opportunity for everybody to remember that these are people. These are these are people just like us. Yeah. Like with children probably live in these homes and, and they're going to be bulldozed yeah. because the Israelis decide that, no, you can't live there because you're Palestinian. That that's I'm sorry, that's outrageous. And yeah. People should call it out. Agreed. Um, one other really interesting story that caught my eye was the Wall Street Journal reported that China has signed a secret agreement with Cambodia to gain access to this Cambodian naval base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Chinese will be able to store weapons, dock their ships, have some personnel stationed there. It's part of a concerted effort by the Chinese to project their military forces further and further from China into the South China Sea and other places. Yeah. They have an outpost in Djibouti uh, in Africa. They've literally created islands for new military yeah. installations and runways and ships. Um, ben, I was curious how big a deal you think this is in terms of, one, our relationship with Cambodia. It was not... Yeah. You know, a partner we think of all the time, but it's certainly significant regionally. And then China's growing naval power. Well, so there are two things. On Cambodia, they have this kind of thuggish, uh, increasingly autocratic leader, Hun Sen. And, you know, he, as he's become more autocratic, has turned more and more to China, mm -hmm. right? And so th I think this is a pattern we will see where leaders who move away from democracy kind of tuck themselves under the protective, you know, wing of yep. China. Um, and, and I think that is a, a disturbing trend that bears watching. Um, I remember we went to a summit in, in, in Cambodia one year. It was in a building called the, the Peace Palace or something. Oh, that had been, I was there for You this. were there for that, right? Built that was in, dark, man. Built entirely by the Chinese. Yeah. Right? So the Chinese built that entire building with Chinese labor, right? So don't think that they weren't picking up your conversations, Tommy. Uh, I, I, well, also, I, I know the world has changed, but we went from, uh, from Burma, from Aung San Suu Kyi's house and yeah. yard to this Cambodian hotel slash casino with the press corps that yeah. was really dark. It was dark, yeah. And then I had to walk through a casino, like smoke-filled casino, to, to announce that Hillary Clinton was going to oh, Israel that's for right. the Gaza it, ceasefire. It, across yeah. the street, there was yeah. something called the Khmer Rouge Food Mart. Yeah, yeah. That, which was it, a I don't do my shopping naming there. Yeah, just, <laughs> yes. uh, um, so anyway, uh, that's one point. Then the second is, worldos can take out a map here, right? A lot of strategists we've seen is the Chinese are trying to create a ring from essentially their coastline, you know, the South China Sea, all the way down through the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. and down uh, to uh, East Africa. And so if you look at, you know, Cambodia and then the Chinese are, are building a, a big port in southern Myanmar uh, in Rakhine State, right, where, where the Rohingya have been mm -hmm. uh, dislodged. We'll, we'll talk about that yeah. soon. Then... They have uh, a lot of interest in Sri Lanka, right? Island country uh, off the coast of India. Then they have this base in Djibouti. It's not hard to see the kind of dotted line that mm -hmm. connects a lot of this infrastructure they're building yeah. that goes, again, all the way from the coast of Africa all the way up to the coast of China to protect their interest and allow them to project power, including naval power, through the South China Sea, Indian Ocean, and then down to the coast of Africa. 
And some of these are outright military facilities, like in Djibouti. Some of these begin as infrastructure projects, mm -hmm. ports, that then become used for military purposes. So we have a port. Okay, maybe then the Chinese military can use that port. Uh, and, and so again, just check out a map and then look at the dotted line that can extend from that Chinese coast around Cambodia, down uh, around the bottom of Myanmar, past Sri Lanka, all the way to Djibouti. And it's pretty clear what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I also noticed that Steve Bannon is part of a revived movement in Washington to drum up fear about the threat from communism generally. Uh, it's called the Committee on the Present Danger. It's basically part of this view that the U.S. and China are just incompatible systems and war is inevitable. So that's fun. I mean, I'm glad that guy was getting the PDB for six months. But then, you know, clearly the Chinese are making some serious moves regionally, and I'm not sure what we're doing about it. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a, you know, something we should be worried about China. But the flip side of that is like they're a big country. They're going right. to throw their weight around. The way to deal with it, I think, is not through kind of alarmist committees on no. whatever chaired by C. Bannon. You would be solidifying your alliances, you know? Like I was just in Europe and the Europeans are worried about China and Chinese tech. The way in which you deal with that is you band together and the democracies band together. So America, Europe, Japan, South mm -hmm. Korea. This is why we have alliances. Australia, New Zealand, yeah. Canada. Um, that's how you deal with it. Um, and, and you try to strengthen essentially international rules that you hold China to account to. This, the thing on C. Bannon that's interesting is, I won't name the country, um, but when we were in transition, uh, one uh, a foreign country um, was telling me that you know they had uh, met with Steve Bannon and Mike Flynn, right? And all Steve Bannon was talking about is China and like is the inevitable conflict with the Chinese. And, and they were kind of like, well, first of all, why is Steve Bannon talking about foreign policy mm -hmm. at all? Um, this seems to be this kind of hobby horse he has to make China, the boogeyman, the organizing principle for like American politics. And in a way, you can see the diabolical way that makes sense for him because it, it blends his weird mix of nationalism and kind of anti-trade, but also it's the nexus to the socialism stuff at home, right? And so if it's the danger of communism, well, suddenly like AOC being called a communist, yeah, right. it's like she's the enemy within or something. It's like new yeah. red scare. And I would watch this. I would watch the convergence potentially of their you know, fear-mongering about China with their fear-mongering about socialism at home. That's a good point. Uh, let's do a little actual Red Scare conversation, a little Russia stuff. Uh, when this episode posts, Bob Mueller will be testifying before Congress about Russian interference in our elections and our favorite president's efforts to stifle his investigation, obstruct justice, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Interestingly, the Daily Beast reported uh, this week that Trump's new favorite news outlet, this right-wing garbage dump called One America News Network, or OAN, literally employs a Kremlin-paid stooge. That is not a joke. One of OAN's political reporters is employed by Sputnik, which is one of those yeah. Kremlin-owned yeah. news-slash-trolling operations that played a huge role in 2016. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't stop Trump from constantly promoting them, but apparently nothing has changed. No, and it shows you... To, you know, first of all, there's always been this symbiosis between Russian media and right-wing media, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the content that the Russians were creating, inventing, firing into the uh, algorithm of American social media feeds was meant to mirror what was in Breitbart or Free Beacon or, you know, Pajama, whatever, mm -hmm. all these fucking guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so this is kind of like the formal merger. Yeah. But there was an informal merger before that because they were saying they were basically inventing the same stories or ginning up the same theories. This just kind of takes it uh, another level. And it does show you that the Mueller thing is forward-looking, not just backward-looking, right? Again, if you can get away with inviting the assistance of a foreign power, meeting with that foreign power, sharing polling information with that foreign power, sending your son to go to a meeting whose express purpose was to dig up dirt on your opponents. If you can do all that and get away with it, why would you not do it again? Right. Yeah. So this is not just it it's not just like oh debate Dems in disarray over impeachment. The question is, do we as a country think that there should be any cost to people doing that? Because if there's not a cost, they will do it again. Yeah. And the fact that he's like essentially endorsing Sputnik is a, is a pretty good indication <laughs> of whether or not he would do it again. What a name, Sputnik. All right, let's close with some lighter things. So first, uh, the Face App app. Uh, our social media feeds were deluged with pictures of our friends looking old because that's cool, apparently. Uh, these were photos created by the Face App app, which uses AI to age your photo if you upload it. 
People started freaking out about the fact that this app was created by this Russian-based company. The DNC actually warned presidential campaign staffer to delete the app or not to use it in the first place. Chuck Schumer, of course, held a press conference about it because no one is better at jumping on the news cycle than he is. So, I mean, Ben, I guess it's probably wise for all of us to think like long and hard about what information we give up to technology companies, including and especially Russian-based ones. But, uh, and I guess our photos as facial recognition software and fake images become more of a problem or are sensitive as well. But this whole thing seemed a touch overblown to me. I mean, Facebook has exponentially more information about us than this face app company ever will. What did you make of this blowback to the popularity of the face app app? Well, first of all, this may be an unpopular opinion. I I know people feel about this in the room here, but like, I didn't, was it that cool? Like what? Like I didn't. Uh, I think it worked well. It was like better than just like a filter. I know. I saw you know? all the pictures in my Instagram. Yeah. And I was kind of like, well, I love I, it. I, did I one of me? I, I didn't it, actually. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't think it was like something that you know. Maybe I'm just too vain. You know. Yeah, um, no, that's fine. I don't want to uh, be aged in a photo either. I, I don't look. I wouldn't be worried that the Russians are like hacking you. I think what might be happening, right, is facial recognition technology is one of the next big waves uh, around data collection, artificial intelligence. The Chinese have a lot of data, right? One of the reasons why the Chinese are so good at facial recognition technology is they have a good, over a billion people, right? Yeah, and, and so, a lot of cameras. And the way in which you get better at facial recognition technology is the accumulation of more and more data. And so, yes, uh, there is a possibility that this company has some ties to the government and the Russian government would like to have lots and lots of data to refine their facial recognition technology. Not to, like, hack you, Right. Uh, this is a different point. This is the more data you have, the better your technology can get, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this could be the Russians in a fairly ingenious, cheap way, acquiring a lot of facial recognition data that they can use uh, to to work on their stuff. You made the key point here, which is whenever any of these controversies come up, including, by the way, like about the NSA and stuff, I'm like, you got anybody who has a Facebook account, like... That is so much more intrusive <laughs> into your personal life, your data, like your, you know, your your habits. Um, that and frankly, we know Facebook has been hacked, right? And mm-hmm. so, if look, if the Russians want to hack you, I, I, they probably you know hacked us seven times by now, right? Yeah. So the Face app, even if you think it's cool, that's fine. Uh, that, that's your preference. It is. I think people should be wary that you know facial recognition technology is the way things are going and can be done for some fairly creepy things. Yeah, look, let me just say, if you're at all worried about this stuff, just if you go to Russia, if you go to China, don't bring your personal phone. Don't bring your personal laptop. Get a burner. Wipe it when you're done. Yeah. That's a precaution I might actually take. I wouldn't sweat uh, taking selfies that Yeah, much. if you take a selfie, I, I don't think the Russians are necessarily going to be creating like fake videos of you tomorrow like yeah. saying crazy shit. Um, they're just made be using your face to have a bigger data set to get better artificial intelligence to suppress their own people. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, two more fun things. So in late June, this college student named Maddie Roberts created a Facebook event called Storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. The goal here was to get as many people as possible to show up, bum rush Let's Area 51, and then just like see what's inside, hopefully. Yeah. Some sweet aliens. Uh, the event is on September 20th, if you still want to go. <laughs> so this guy meant it as a joke. But pretty soon, like, nearly 2 million people signed up saying they would go. And a bunch, couple million more were, like, pending. Like, I'm considering it. Uh, a bunch of brands jumped on the story. Bud Light offered free beer to any alien that makes it out of Area 51. Brilliant. There's copycat events at Loch Ness. It's all pretty funny. But I read this story, and I thought to myself, if we were still in the NSC, we would literally have had to attend situation room meetings about no this question. stupid bullshit. There no would question. be security discussions, a communications plan, a, a, a congressional outreach, yeah. and it would be so annoying unless it meant we got a deep dive on intel about aliens, they which never, I never got. They never told us the truth about Area 51, which always kind of pissed me off. Um, and then- Did you ask? I mean, I used to kind of jokingly ask my, my intel briefer in the morning, like thinking maybe, that, and they'd just kind of laugh and look at me. I'm like, you know, I'm like, but for real, man. Yeah, I'm like, for reals, man. Like, uh, <laughs> there's got to be like ten things that you know about Area 51 or something, right? Um, but uh, there'd also be some guy at the NSC that you and I had never seen before who would like be leading those meetings. Yeah, he's like the guy responsible for like domestic contingency. Blah blah blah. Uh-huh. You know. um, or, or like a, there was like a classified space guy. Like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, he thinks about space. I've never seen you in a meeting that I'm allowed to go. He's in running ever. the space force now. Probably. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. 
but the boy. alien thing, I mean, I, I would. Um, yeah, well, I'll give you an example. Like I, there, there are these budgets, right? Because Harry Reid has funded it to, mm-hmm. to make contact with aliens and stuff. Oh like, yeah, yeah. I never, I, fuck. I wish I had the eight years back, um, mainly to 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 dig deeper. Just demand information. Just demand the information on the aliens, um, because. Do some more. Do some unmasking. You apparently didn't do yeah, any well, unmasking. Well, yeah. I mean, I really blew it on that one. I mean, um, it, you know, uh, the deep state is was husbanding all the information. That's bullshit. Uh, last last thing. Apparently, Trump called the Swedish prime minister to help get uh, a rapper named ASAP Rocky out of jail. Uh, he had been lobbied by Kanye West, Kim Kardashian. I just wanted to use our one a day. Imagine if Barack Obama did this so what you, fox news would say do you remember like obama in like year one or two had like a barbecue with some nba players hip-hop barbecue he did yeah. hip-hop barbecue and like literally fox news sent itself into like a fucking frenzy you know for days about this hip-hop barbecue you know just because there were some black athletes on the south mm-hmm. lawn of the white house it, it was as if like you know america had gone out of business um and the you know the tea party had to be mobilized in action because they cared so much about deficits. We couldn't have black athletes on the South ben, Lawn. Ben, this is a real headline. August 5th, 2011, Fox Nation. Obama's hip-hop barbecue didn't create jobs. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this actually happened. I mean, like like you guys think we're crazy. Like Fox Nation is all over it. They were all over it for days, right? They're right. And so if, if, if Obama's calling a foreign leader, right, for ASAP and to, to those, you know, again, uh, not... Uh, connoisseurs that is an s as a dollar sign yes right it's not an s it's asap um if he's calling the minister of a foreign country and demanding that a, a rapper be released on behalf of kanye west um yes what would what would fox what, Na- would, fox what would fox nation have said they, about that they, they would have been would, uh, displaced yeah, yeah. apparently uh trump may have been actually hurt his cause by trying to get politicians to interfere in the system over well, there and they the, don't appreciate it your swedish prime minister you know, you're dealing with this kind of civilized, social democratic Nordic country. You get the word that the president of the United States would like to talk to you. You're like, oh, fuck. I got to take Trump's call. <laughs> like, what on earth could this be about? Right? I'm Swedish. What is it? Is it about? Yeah, what's he mad you know, about? What is he mad about? NATO? What, what, what are we talking it, about? You know, some nexus to NATO or, or there's a lot of foreign assistance. And you get on the phone and Donald Trump is talking to you about ASAP. Rocky, and you're just furiously like, googling. Like, yeah, what do you do? Like, what do you? Do you look at your staff. Like, what? What is the? What are the follow up meetings that happened in the Swedish government after that I phone don't know. call? I don't like know. again, like what? What is going on here? Yeah, you know? I, I heard the PM's more of an ASAP Ferg guy. Uh, okay, <laughs> after the break, our conversation uh, with the right and honorable David Lammy. He's very right and very honorable. On the phone, we have returning guest and friend of the pod, right and honorable David Lammy. Mr. Lammy is a British politician who's been a member of parliament for the Labour Party in Tottenham since 2000. Sir, welcome to Pod Save the World again. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be joining you. Um, So Boris Johnson, the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. Um, Can you help listeners (laughs) here in the U.S. understand who Boris Johnson is, what his priorities are? And what you think this might mean for the U.S.-U.K. special relationship? Wow, where do you start? <laughs> I mean, look, um, some of your listeners may remember the children's story, uh, The Emperor Has No Clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Boris Johnson. This is someone who everybody can see. He's naked as he stands, but people kind of don't see it and don't want to point it out until a young child uh, points it out. And <laughs> Boris Johnson is a chameleon in British public life. He, he was mayor of London. As mayor of London, he ran as a compassionate conservative. Um, he called for an um, amnesty, for example, on asylum seekers and refugees in our immigration system. Uh, but he has moved back to the right where he was previously, as before he became an MP, he was obviously the editor of the Spectator magazine, which is a very right-wing magazine. And uh, he is in cahoots with many of the advisors of Donald Trump, including um, uh, Steve Bannion, who um, 
has helped him along with his journey to become prime minister. I would expect a special relationship, i.e. the relationship with Donald Trump's White House to be very close. Mm-hmm. Um, Boris's style is similar. It, it, there won't be as many tweets. He uses humor to obfuscate um, his political opportunism. And I, what I would say about the both of them is that they're both narcissists. Hmm. These are both men with the sentence beginning with them, and then everything else flows from that. Um, he is in cahoots with the ERG, who are absolutely determined to have a hard Brexit. I think a very divided Britain is about to get much more divided with Boris Johnson in number 10. So, David, um, you know, and also we remember that Boris Johnson started his career as a journalist by literally making up stories about the European Union, uh, reporting from Brussels, you know, helping to fuel the anti-EU sentiment, then obviously led the Brexit campaign, uh, surfing a wave of lies uh, to a victory in that referendum. The question I had for you is, in a way, is it a good thing that, I mean, obviously you prefer a different prime minister, but is there something that is good in the fact that Boris is now going to be the prime minister who's essentially going to have to reckon with the consequences of his own actions. You know, he's going to be the guy holding the bag uh, this fall. Uh, I doubt he can get a better deal on Brexit um, than Theresa May did. The EU has no interest in doing that. Um, I mean, is there something clarifying in having the guy responsible for bringing the UK to the brink of this uh, being uh, the guy in office? Look, Ben, you're right. Um, In a sense, uh, as Shakespeare would have said it, he's about to be hoist by his own petard. <laughs> he he has um, he's going to run around Europe this summer, this August, um, speaking to Macron and Merkel and saying that he's about to forge a new deal. He thinks that the European Union will blink and give him some kind of deal. Um, most of us think that there is no new deal that's available, or something that's certainly not substantially different. There are some questions about whether he will um, end up throwing Northern Ireland under a bus in terms of the backstop, which was a fundamental part of the deal that Theresa May brokered. Um, But it's very likely that he will head towards us having no deal. Um, And therefore, that will force a vote of confidence in his leadership, which I suspect he will lose. And we would be into a general election. Um, but I think that, Ben, I, I'm not as sanguine as you because the truth is the consequences of no deal is not just catastrophic in the short term for the United Kingdom. This, is, this will mean a huge loss of jobs um, in the UK, a um, huge uh, economic downturn for many people in our country. Uh, it is also... Um, bad news for the Anglo-American relationship uh, at a time when we should all be concerned about China. We should all be concerned about Russia. We need Britain looking outward. Britain is navel-gazing inward. And I'm afraid the US, because of Donald Trump, is in a similar kind of place. So I think that this is a very, very dangerous time um, uh, for us to be behaving in this way. Yeah, no, you make a, a great point. And I mean, I guess, obviously, <laughs> this brings up yet again the endgame. Um, on the one hand, you had uh, the House of Commons vote pretty clearly against uh, a no-deal Brexit uh, when Theresa May was uh, in office. Uh, on the other hand, as you say, you have the unlikelihood of Boris getting anything better and Boris you know, has in, in, suggested that he would be comfortable with the no deal versus staying in. Um, is there any way in which this whole thing just kind of unravels, you get a confidence vote, and there's an opening for what you've called for, which is a, a people's vote, another referendum potentially, uh, on whether or not to leave uh, the EU? Well, it's very hard to predict, but absolutely, it is certainly the case that you get into number 10 and Boris will walk into number 10 very, very shortly. And my God, no one gives up power quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You've been there, Ben. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
Um, and so if he, if he, if we had a general election, whenever you're in an election cycle, you've got to calculate that you might lose. Mm. Um, so some of this will be about the polls over the next few weeks, but it's going to be very, very bumpy. And if Boris Johnson calculates that he might lose, he doesn't want to force no deal, which might vote, bring down a vote of confidence. He doesn't want a general election. Then what's left on the table? Well, yeah. what's left on the table is for him to go with a second referendum and to ask the people whether they want to remain in the European Union or go with some deal or no deal. And actually, he may calculate that alongside Nigel Farage, and let's not forget Nigel Farage in all of this, the great friend of Donald Trump, yeah. Steve Bannon, who's formed this Brexit party. It's a very, very nationalist, Islamophobic, uh, hates the EU uh, party. There will be a kind of informal alliance. It won't be formal, but an informal alliance with Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. Uh, these guys get on. And of course, they may calculate that they can win that second referendum. So don't take a second referendum yeah. off the table. Yeah. I mean, because actually there's a scenario under which they believe it's in their interest to go with that instead of forcing a general election. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we do know is that Theresa May is no longer <laughs> going to be uh, leading the UK. Uh, she gave her final speech as prime minister last week. I believe you described it as hollow. Can you talk about why you felt like her, her speech rang hollow? And, and do you think she was a poor leader or was she handed a bad situation that most people wouldn't have been able to manage or maybe some combination of both? Like, how will history remember her? Look, I think clearly she was a poor leader. Um, and that was best demonstrated in the election that she called and then almost lost. Uh, she boxed herself in with these dividing lines in her negotiating with the EU that she didn't need to do these red lines. Uh, but I think my views about Theresa May are really based on Theresa May really ramping up the immigration rhetoric in our country, creating what she calls a hostile environment for immigrants, people of color, anyone who's different in Britain. It led to a Windrush scandal for these are for Caribbean people who arrived here after the war and are British and, and them fighting for their rights. Um, and look, very, very sadly, um, this environment of hostility to immigrants, let's be clear, Boris Johnson has had said some appalling things about gay men and, men and women, appalling things about Muslims, about black people. Um, this rhetoric like we're seeing for, from Donald Trump, is going to amplify. We're living in times where there are those of us on the progressive side that want to fight for a civic nationalism in which all of us can lay claim and, and be patriotic about the countries that we belong to. These guys, and it includes Theresa May, were pushing a kind of ethnic nationalism mm -hmm. based on being Anglo-Saxon, if you're English. And you saw the speech that Donald Trump gave last week. Now, Theresa May was not ex explicit in that way, but I'm afraid she bought, she drank the Kool-Aid. She bought some of what Nigel Farage was pushing. Boris Johnson certainly is alongside him. And that's what makes people like me very worried uh, and very hostile to these guys. We have to win this battle. We have to get back to a place where we, defend our liberal values, defend the human rights we've won. We recognize that there is a role for everyone, and we're not just playing lip service to issues of discrimination, race, and hostility to people and minorities. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess one last question, David, is, you know, okay, here we are. <laughs> we've got Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, two terrifically flawed human beings, narcissistic human beings, uh, people who've stoked the fires of racism and anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, the emergency is clear, and Brexit is an existential question about the future of the UK. And so we know what we're against. Uh, and, you know, we've talked before about, obviously, the need for progressives to both fight back and put forward an alternative. As you look ahead, uh, the Labour Party that you're a member of, that Jeremy Corbyn is leader of, 
What is the direction of the Labor Party right now? What are you guys putting forward uh, every day in Parliament? What is the argument you're prosecuting? Is it is it is it just Brexit focused, or 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 essentially what is the alternative that uh, you guys put forward uh, for the country? And, and how much is that something? I'm afraid that, yeah. too often the Labor Party, the British Labor Party, has been missing in action. You know, on the big issue of the day, um, Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership of the Labour Party have tried to sit on the fence. Yeah. They've ended up with splinters in places they didn't want. We, our poll ratings have fallen through the floor yeah. uh, as a consequence of not striking a proper position. Um, and therefore, we've struggled to be heard on the things that we care about, on education, on health, on social welfare, on dealing with inequality. Uh, we have to get back to that. We're now going to find, in the shape of Boris Johnson, a much more formidable opponent than Theresa May, um, uh, who's backed by big money mm-hmm. and very strong right-wing forces, um, uh, many of them, I might say, in the United States. We have to raise our game. We have to raise our game. Uh, we have to be clear on what we are fighting for here. And let me just say, by the way, there's a lot of talk um, about a US-UK trade deal. Yeah. And, what, and it's being pushed by hawks in London and hawks in Washington. It's really a deregulatory agenda. It, it, it's, a, it's an agenda that would, where I'm afraid, you know, American companies will lay claim to the British National Health Service a deregulatory regime with very poor labor rights. That's the agenda that they're pushing, and it's an agenda that the British Labour Party should oppose. We're in a period where, with the technological revolution, with huge inequalities across our countries, with real pressure on working class and middle class communities, um, the answer has to be more redistribution. It has to be progressive politics. The charlatans have come along and they say it's about immigrants, it's about Islam, it's about anything else but the truth. And progressives have to be in a place where we are absolutely explaining um, what, what these problems, the source of these problems, how we will deal with it. And sometimes we have to fight fire with fire. And that means being pretty robust with people like Boris Johnson <laughs> and Nigel Farage and Donald Trump in, this, in, in, in the United States of America. That's my view. Yeah. And I think there needs to be a sharpness of focus in the British Labour Party that we've been lacking in the last few months. That's a good call to arms. Um, David, thank you for helping us understand what in the world is going on over in the UK. And, and just a PSA to uh, all MPs who might be listening, be nice to your communication staff. Don't go the <laughs> route of uh, Jared O'Mara, independent MP for Sheffield Hallam, whose press secretary got on the official Twitter account and ripped him a new one <laughs> as his way of quitting. Uh, my favorite ending was he called his old boss a selfish, degenerate prick. So... <laughs> David is none of those things. You are none of those things. I imagine you also guard closely the password to the Twitter account. I am so pleased that I treat my staff well. My God. (laughs) Poor old Jared Demar. My God. (laughs) Thank you again. Have a great uh, great week and uh, we'll be watching. Thanks, David. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Pod Save the World. Uh, Again, a little rate, a little review in that store. Tell your friends. Tell all the college kids. Cheat, cheat. Thanks for listening.